Joshua chapter 1, we're going to read the first five verses. It says, Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give unto them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you. As I said unto Moses from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and unto the great sea towards the going down of the sun shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I just pray that you'd help me out for the next few minutes as I bring this, this thought, Lord. This, um, this charge that you've given, Lord, to me and to the ministry that we have. I pray that you would set me aside, Lord, and, and, and give your words. I ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. So, I want to contrast two groups. I want to contrast the current Christian church culture in America today versus the children of Israel in a couple of different forms. Um, now I'm going to back up a little bit from this passage we read, and let's talk about Moses and the children of Israel. Under the, under the leadership of Moses when they came to the Jordan River, we're pretty familiar with the story. Um, God told Moses, send spies into the land and, and search it out, right? And ten spies gave an evil report, two spies gave a good report. Now, we like to poo-poo those spies who gave an evil report. We like to say, well, they didn't have any faith, they were wrong. When in fact, they were not wrong the stark reality of that was is that bad report that those ten spies gave wasn't evil because they wanted it to be evil. It wasn't evil because they wanted to turn the children of Israel away from the charge that God gave them. By the way, before I get into this, the charge the children of Israel had was to take possession of the promised land. That was their charge. They left Egypt, why? To take possession of the land that God had given them. Right? That's their charge. That's the first charge. The ten spies... Their evil report wasn't evil because they wanted it to be bad. Because they did. It's not because they didn't want to go get the land. The land was great. Their charge was evil because they looked at it from a human perspective and said, there is absolutely no way that we can take this people. They're giants, right? They're a lot bigger than we are. They live in walled cities. They have chariots of iron. Technologically and tactically, they were so much more advanced than the children of Israel. There was not a chance for this nomadic people who walked across the wilderness to take control of that land and defeat all of those nations that were within there. It was impossible, truly. On top of that, they understood that should they try, they were going to be defeated soundly and quickly, and all of their possessions would be taken as a spoil, and their wives and children would be subjected to slavery for the rest of their existence. And they just came out of slavery. They knew what that looked like. They knew the abuses and, and the hardships that they, were, that they would experience. And they said, no, we can't do this. It's impossible. And the children of Israel didn't do the charge that God commanded them to do. Right? So we move into a period now. Since they didn't obey God, and then God was like, okay, fine. This whole generation is not going to see the promised land. You're all going to wander in the wilderness until you're, until you're gone. The next day they were like, no, no, we'll, we'll go ahead and do what you said. Right, the next day, no, 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 we're just kidding. We'll do what you said. No, it's too late. Go into the wilderness, wander in the wilderness, right? You'll exist. 
there in the wilderness. You'll have a life in the wilderness. You'll raise cattle and kids in the wilderness. While the children of Israel were in the wilderness, were they still God's people? Did God still take care of them? Did God still lead them? Provided for them? For 40 years, God took care of his children while they wandered in the wilderness. But here's the problem. Their life was kind of pointless. They hadn't done the thing, the one thing that God told them to do with their life. They lost that. They hadn't done that. Let's contrast that. Later on, they come back, right? And we just read this. Moses dies after 40 years. The children have wandered in the wilderness. God took care of them. God led them. They were still God's people. God provided for them. They had a good life in the wilderness. They come back under the leadership of Joshua, and, and God says, Arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all the people under the land, which I do give unto them, even to the children of Israel. Later on in verse 5, he says, As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. What advantage did Joshua have with the children of Israel when they came back to the Jordan River after 40 years? What more tactical or technological advantage did they have now after wandering in the wilderness that they didn't have them? Likely none. Chances are they didn't build walled cities while they were wandering in the wilderness, huh? Nope. Um, chances are they didn't construct chariots of iron while they were being a nomadic people. Nomadic people don't typically engineer and construct new technology because they're traveling. You travel lightly, right? Contrast that. In the land of Canaan, chances are those walled cities got a little bit thicker as the budget for the building grew, right? Those giants living on that good land probably got a little bit bigger. Probably raised a few more giants' kids, right? Um, they probably spent a little more time practicing their warfare. They probably built a few more iron chariots because they already had the technology to build them. So really, they had no advantage, maybe even more of a disadvantage, right? But what happens at this point? At this point, Joshua and the children of Israel said, we missed the boat the last time around, and we're not going to let that fail this time. We know already that it's impossible for us to take that land. For us, it's impossible to take that land. There will have to be supernatural provision for us to survive this and be successful. So they got up, and they got over Jordan. And the Jordan River parted for them as a sign that God was providing for them. But importantly to note, it didn't part until their feet were in the water. Right? And it's not like they were like, hey, a couple of the scribes, a couple of the, uh, of, the, of the priests to carry the ark, you guys go on ahead with the ark and just kind of set your feet in the water, see if it parts. If it parts, we're going to go ahead and pony up the rest of the troops and we'll go ahead and cross the river. No. They got the whole people up, they got them lined out, and they headed them across the Jordan River. They were going to cross that thing one way or the other. But when their feet touched the water, parted. Right? God said, I'm doing this. It's not possible for you. It's me. So then they come to Jericho. And then they ransacked Jericho. And they used uh, technology and trebuchets to take down the walls of Jericho. Getting the story wrong, aren't I? No. They arguably took the worst tactic ever seen in history to besiege a city. They walked around it. It makes absolutely zero sense. The people in Jericho, it was probably scary. 
Because the troops in Jericho were probably standing on top of the walls at first, like with arrows, right? Bows and arrows. They're probably big rocks ready to drop down on them. And they were like, what are they? They're, they're just walking. Like, why? I thought they were going to try and attack us. I thought they were here to take over our country. But instead, they're just walking around this place. I don't understand what's going on here. So they walked, right? And we know how that story ends. They walked around the city the number of times they were told to. They yelled at the walls, and the walls fell down. Didn't they? They yelled at the walls, and they blew their trumpets, and they made a great noise, and the city went, right? Not because they yelled loud, because God dropped the city. God was showing them, hey, I do this. You cannot, but I don't do this until you obey. Until you obey, I don't do this. You're still my people. I still provide for you. I still work in your life. I still guide you. But until you obey, I don't knock down walls for you. We're at war today. And not just because there's fighting going on in Ukraine, not just because there's political corruption in the White House and all across the land, not just because there's political moves to take over the foundation that this country is built on. We're at war today because Satan doesn't want souls reconciled to God. That's why we're at war. And it's strictly a spiritual war. And the problem is, it's not a new war. We're just becoming more aware of it because things are getting darker. Right? This war has always been going on. And every other war that we've ever set foot in that's claimed the lives of American soldiers, every other war has been stemmed from this war that we're in now. Every other war that we fought has come from a fallen world. It's come because of sin. Physical violence is a manifestation of this war. Right? Sin causes these problems. A fallen world. This war is not just a hypothetical war like sometimes we relegate it to. It's not just a sporadic war. Like, you know, back then I had a real spiritual battle. Yes, you did have a spiritual battle because we're in a spiritual war. And the spiritual battle happened because we're in a spiritual war. How many other spiritual battles have you had now? Maybe not enough because we haven't been fighting the spiritual war. See, I want to compare this group here in these two instances to the church in America today. We kind of forgot we were at war, didn't we? Um, I've, I've seen churches across the country, and, and Pastor talked a little bit about training scars today. I like to point out training scars. You're taking my training scars thing. We have training scars in church today because we've been doing the same thing over and over again for so long. We accept the norm, and we see what everyone else is doing or not doing, and we see that as the normalcy, Right? It's a training scar. You see, this group has been given a charge. And I don't mean just in America. I mean the Christian church as it exists. The New Testament Christian church as it exists in the world today has been given a charge. That commission we talked about. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Right? But the problem is, is we haven't been taking that to heart necessarily. In America, what we see all across this land is a form of churchianity where we look really good on the outside 
where we do the things that's expected of us to fit socially within our church circles. Um, but to be honest, we're not in the war. We're not attacking the, the walls of Jericho. We haven't crossed the Jordan River. We're still God's people. God's still taking care of us. He's still guiding us. He's still providing for us. We still have it pretty well here. But we have a task, right? If we're going to accomplish this task, what we're going to have to do is go to war. There's a couple of things that have to happen in order for us to go to war. I'll try to wrap up with this quickly. First thing we've got to do is we've got to enlist in that war. You see, I spent the better part of my Christian life, um, even as an adult married with a family, looking really good on the outside. Going to church when I'm supposed to go to church. Saying the right things that I'm supposed to say, doing the right things that I'm supposed to do. Right? Looking okay. Being God's child. Yes. Saved. Born again. Yes. But I hadn't got into the war. I wasn't fighting the war. I was, I was living the American dream. Um, I was starting a business, pursuing a career, and I, and I was doing it, telling myself that, God, I'm going to make this much money, and then we're going to do this with it for you. That's what I'm going to do for you, Lord. Come on and get on board. Chavez and I were talking about that just the other night. That's, that was me for a lot of my Christian life. I didn't understand what enlistment looked like, which is weird because I served in the military. Sure seems like I should have caught on to what enlistment looked like, right? Let's talk about that a little bit. Flip with me over to Romans chapter 12. This has really become about my favorite passage. Romans 12, I'm just going to read it quickly. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I'm going to break that down really quick, because there's a, there's a um, what am I trying to say? There's a pattern here, right? There's a you, brethren. Strong beseeching that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now we have a a bit of a colloquialism in the Christian world about surrendering to the Lord's work. When the Lord calls, I surrendered. Or the Lord called and, and I fought him. For years and years and years and I fought him. And then I finally surrendered to do what he said. I don't, I'm not a big fan of surrender. I know what we're talking about. I know what we're trying to get at. But I'm not a big fan of that concept of surrender. Because what that connotates is the fact that I was doing my thing over here. And God was calling me over there saying, I need your help. I've got a job for you to do. These people are dying. But I was over here doing my thing. Right? I wasn't ready to surrender to what the Lord had for me. That's not what this verse says. This verse says to present your body a living sacrifice. That's an active role. That's, that's moving towards Him first. There's a big difference between God having you and you having God. See, salvation, that was free. He did that. We can't. His grace through faith in Jesus Christ's blood is the only way for us to be reconciled to God. Great message this morning about that, right? That was free, and it didn't cost us anything. And you know what? Socially, 
it probably didn't hurt us any to get saved either. Some countries around this world, if you accept Jesus Christ, you forfeit your life, your family, your livelihood, many things. Here, chances are it didn't cost you much. Now, I know there's the one-off cases here and there where people have been shunned by their families for accepting Jesus Christ. But here, by and large, it doesn't cost us much. We have Christ. But does he have us? World War II started with the bombing of Pearl Harbor, right? After Pearl Harbor was bombed, something unique happened within the armed forces. And that was there was the greatest swell in military enlistments this country's ever seen until it was rivaled by that of the 9-11 attacks. The greatest swells of enlistment into the military that we've ever seen. Why do you suppose that was? We had some skin in the game. We saw a cause, right? Men and women saw that there was a purpose, there was a cause, there was something that was bigger than themselves that needed their help. And they said, I'm presenting my body to the United States of America as a living sacrifice. Holy, completely. And if I die doing that, I'm willing to. That's what enlistment looks like. Right? That's what it means to present your body as a living sacrifice. And I know this is a church that has a lot of military people. There's a military base here. A lot of us understand that enlistment. And as a society, we kind of look up to that. When someone joins the military and is willing to serve and potentially die for their country. We look, up, we look up to that, don't we? But that's a bit of a futile war. Because that war is going to fight over and over and over again in another place, in another country, in another field. It's just going to keep happening. Until Jesus comes back, it's going to keep happening. Right? There's another war. Right here, right now. In this town, I dare say in this building. There's another war, and it's just as real a war as the one you carried a machine gun to and lost your buddies. It's just, it's more real of a war. The cause is so much greater because we're not losing people physically on this earth. We're losing people forever, for eternity, all over the world. By the mercies of God, we ought to be running to him and saying, look, this is all I've got. It's not very much. It's this goofy person with all of my faults, right? Pastor said this morning, not many, not many mighty are called, not many wise. God uses the foolish things. This is all I got, this goofy guy right here, and not a whole lot else besides some resources maybe. You know, I had a job, had a house, got a couple of cars, Lord, this is all I have. It's, it's absolutely nothing to you. And there's absolutely no reason why you would accept this, why it would hold any value. But would you take it? Would you please let me fight this war with you? Would you use me for this battle? And he does. And he will. And we're called to do so. See, there's nothing shiny about my life that Jesus was, that God was looking around down below here in the United States and saying, well, gosh, this guy over here, he looks pretty shiny. 
I was just looking for a shiny person to help me out. I was just looking for someone who was uh, saying the right things and, and doing the right things and, um, you know, showing up to church on time. That's exactly what I was. Would you come help me? That didn't happen to me. I got to a point in my life when I was said, this is pointless. I'm in the wilderness. I'm wandering around. I'm getting fed. He's providing for me. But it's pointless. And when I die, at the end of this, the only thing I'll have to show for it is a 401k. And a, maybe a piece of property to leave my kids. That's going to burn up. Maybe before they get a chance to enjoy it. That's, that's all. It was, it was purposeless. I was in the wilderness. I dare say a lot of us in this country today are there in the wilderness. See, we haven't presented ourselves. We haven't enlisted. There's a cause. And we know it here. But we're not willing to give all of this to it. Right? We're not willing to get all in. We're kind of waiting for God to pull on us so, he can, so we can help him out with what he wants. I really think that if we could just get a little bit of a glimpse of who God is, a little glimpse of how holy and awesome, how amazing and wonderful, how loving he was, just a sliver, I think we would be knocking each other out of the way to beat down his door to go to work for him. I think we'd be saying, what on earth else would I do? What, what else would I spend my life doing besides working for him? Why would I invest my life in things that are going to burn up in a few years? Why would I take this vapor that I have while I'm here and just use it for me, to make me comfortable, to make me fed and happy and, you know, all safe and nice and things? Why would I do that? That doesn't make any sense at all. Present your body as a reasonable uh, uh, sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Please take me. I, I desperately need you, God, to take me. I desperately need to not live this life for myself. Amen. It's only reasonable. See, one of the other colloquialisms we have in this country is um, this idea that it's for the ruling class of Christian, this total surrender. No, that's what pastors do. You know, that's what missionaries do, right? The missionaries, when you're called to be a missionary, you surrender and you give God your whole life. That's for missionaries. I haven't been called to be a missionary yet, so that's why I'm not done. That's why I'm not there, right? I haven't, I'm not called to be a missionary yet, so that's why I'm not in it. That's not what this says. See, there's no full-time Christian and part-time Christian. Now, if I'm wrong, if someone's find the passage where the job description of part-time Christian is in the Bible here, help me out. You've studied for a long time. Longer than me, I'm... You know what I mean? I'm not that studied. I'm not going to say old. I'm going to say studied. <laughs> everybody has the same responsibility. And it's only reasonable that everybody would put the same emphasis and come to the same place of committing everything that we are to Him. And I'm not saying that God's going to take you and pull you out of this seat and send you to a foreign country where you have to sleep in a hammock and eat food off the ground that you cooked over a fire. I'm not saying that he might not have you build a business. I'm not saying he might not have you work a trade. I'm just saying that now you're not doing it for you or for your family's provision. You're doing it for him. Because you've taken everything that this is and you said, take it away from me. It's got to be for you. 
a lot of Christians today are sitting in our church pews and we're looking at Jericho. We want those walls to fall down. We want revival. I believe we could potentially be headed for a great revival, but I believe that because I know that we're headed for some very dark times. We're headed for some violence. We're headed for some loss. We're headed for discomfort. But with that could come great revival. But so many of us are sitting in our pews in church and we're tossing rocks over the, Jericho, over the Jordan River at Jericho. We're throwing rocks at Jericho. Please knock those walls down, Lord. I want those walls to fall so bad. But we haven't crossed the river yet. We're still standing over here in the wilderness. We haven't been willing to cross the river no matter what happens. Because what if God doesn't part the river and we go underwater? What if we lose everything we have? Right? What if I don't have a home to live in anymore? Because, because he didn't part the water for me. So they didn't cross the river because he parted the water. He parted the water because they obeyed him across the river. Amen. Last thing I'm going to talk about. I said there's two things we have to do when there's a war. The second thing is to engage in the battle. So you can't engage in the battle until you've enlisted in the military. A lot of us are sitting in your pews like, well, God hasn't called me yet. God hasn't given me marching orders. Can I tell you something? Uncle Sam hasn't given me any marching orders recently either. And that's because I'm not in the military. When I was in the military, guess what I got from Uncle Sam? I got orders. And you obeyed those orders, right? If you knew it was good for you, you went where Uncle Sam told you to go. Even if it meant you didn't make it back, you still went. A lot of us are saying, I'm not getting orders. That's because we're not in yet. We haven't enlisted yet. But once we've enlisted, we need to engage. Right? We are in a war. It's a real war. It's not hypothetical. It's not, it's not just like kind of out there in the air somewhere. No, it's a real war. We have real weapons. We all carry a sword into this place today. Right? We didn't carry it in just to shine it up. We're all going to carry a sword out of this place today. Right? It's not just for decoration. Um, a fob is a forward operating base. Um, and when we're in a combat zone, troops are stationed in a fob. Okay? And things that troops do in a fob are, are things like, that's where they'll go to rest. That's where they'll go to feed. Right? They'll eat there. They'll heal up from wounds that they received on the battlefield. They'll train and prepare to meet the enemy in battle. Okay? These are just some things that, that soldiers would do on a fob. Let's say there's a fob in Iraq right now. Not right now because we've left that, but bear with me. And that unit got into this pattern of resting and feeding and healing up and preparing to meet the enemy for battle. Went right back to the, to the rack and started resting again. Got up and went to feed some more, right? Did some more healing up. Did some more preparing for battle. Went back to the rack, started resting some more. And they never left the fob to go engage the enemy in the, in the field of battle. Two things would happen. First of all, the enemy would not be denied freedom of movement. That's important. Because if the enemy has freedom of movement, he's going to continue to take territories. He's going to sneak into places, unbeknownst, because nobody's opposing him. The second thing that's going to happen is enemy strongholds are not going to go down. 
No one's attacking him. So the, con- the confident, strong enemy continues to bolster his position, right? Until he has all the territory, and then he turns his attention to the fob, where the soldiers are, and just picks them off one at a time. Until there's the last few defenders standing on the wall saying, how do we lose all the territory? How did things get so bad? How did we lose our, our area of responsibility, our AO? How did we lose that? And then the governor gets up on live TV and says, you're unessential, you need to close your doors, and the fob folds. That's us, right? See, we're not, church isn't a, a place you go to or a club you belong to. Membership in the church isn't just a piece of paper with your name on it. It's your unit. This is your unit right here. This is who you go to battle with. When you take this out there, you're fighting an enemy. When you come in here, you're training and feeding, strengthening. Then you get your battle buddy and you go on patrol. And if we stop doing that, we're going to lose. If we stand on our defensive foot, the enemy's just going to win slowly. Um, Matthew 16, 18, Matthew 16, 18 says, Jesus talking to Peter, says, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I'm going to build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Great. The enemy cannot prevail against the church. The Bible says it. That's a scripture verse. The Bible says the enemy will not prevail against the church. Right? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Here's the problem. Gates are not an offensive mechanism. Okay? Gates don't attack anything. God didn't say the enemy is not going to attack the church and prevail against that body of believers. God didn't say that. God didn't say the church is a safe place. As long as you're within the walls of the church, nothing bad's going to happen to you. God didn't say that. He said the gates won't prevail against it. Gates are out there. They're keeping people in and keeping us out. We have offensive mechanism, right? The sword is an offensive weapon. It's also a defensive weapon, but primarily in combat, you take this weapon to attack the enemy. We have a promise. The gates aren't going to prevail. Pastor, I'll turn it over to you for a few moments, and we'll do some scenarios.